So I was just about to upload this when it dawned on me. I should probably say that in this episode, there is an eensy weensy teeny tiny bit of language that some listeners might find triggering. Proceed with caution. Hello, and welcome to Astrosplained. I'm Charles, your friendly neighborhood astrologer, and today we're doing things a little differently. In my last episode, I said that astrologers can be right as much as 85% of the time, with God using the other 15% for miracles and grace. This rubbed at least one of you the wrong way. To this person, who may or may not be my good friend Travis, that line sounded like a disclaimer, like an excuse for whenever my predictions don't pan out, which, P.S., does not happen often. So I thought about this, and so I think the time has come for us to talk a little bit about philosophy. I've already told you I am not a teacher, and I should add to this that I am not a philosopher. I can't lead anyone to enlightenment, I can barely lead myself to the gym, but I am an astrologer, and for you to really understand what I do, what any astrologer does, you have to know a little bit about the worldview that gave rise to Jyotisha, the proper name for Vedic astrology. Which means we need to talk about karma. Every action has an equal or opposite reaction. You reap what you sow. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All of these are variations on the theme of karma. Everything you do makes something else happen and you have to experience the effect of those actions. The thing is, the reaction doesn't always come right after the action. Oftentimes, the reaction happens much later, and if you believe in reincarnation, the reaction doesn't always arrive in the same lifetime as the action. Now, all of these actions and reactions are called karmas. The sum of all the karmas that you have collected is called Sanchitta Karma. It's the big pile of karmas in the sky. And you have to reckon with all of them as part of your spiritual evolution. So imagine, you're a soul bound for Earth, about to be born as a human being. Before you can take up residence in a fetus, the universe cuts off a slice of all that Sanchitta Karma and gives it to you. That slice is called prarabdha karma, and it represents the portion of your sanchitta karma that you were supposed to experience in this life. You can also think of sanchitta karma as a sort of karmic orchard, and the prarabdha karmas are the pieces of fruit that are ripe and ready to be plucked and enjoyed, or not. And that's where astrology comes in. Because the sky at the place and moment of your birth is a map that can help you make sense of that chunk of karma the universe gave you when you were born. Of course, unless you're in a Harry Potter novel, maps don't move. The way the sky looked when you were born is the way the sky looked when you were born. No do-overs. Which probably has you wondering if this karmic map doesn't move, what about free will? 
your prarabdha karma, the karma that's ready to be plucked, you know, the karma that you brought with you into the world, is made of three types of karma. It's like a carton of Neapolitan ice cream. One container, three flavors. You've got karma that's fixed, karma that's fixed-ish, and karma that is not fixed. The Sanskrit words for these are drid, drid, adrid, and adrid, but I'm sticking to English as much as possible. Karmas that are fixed cannot be changed. If you are born black in the United States, you're going to have certain experiences that a white person simply will not have. Can't be helped. Welcome to America. Race is a fixed karma. Now, let's say the family that you're born into has a history of high blood pressure. Maybe you'll have high blood pressure too, but maybe you won't. If you exercise and eat a healthy diet, you probably won't, despite that family history. That is a karma that's fixed-ish. It can change, but it requires work. Now let's say that you're born fully able-bodied, average weight, no serious medical conditions, and you have easy access to a park or a gym. If you choose to exercise, you will become stronger. And if you don't, you won't. This is unfixed karma. Choose your own adventure. The astrologer's job is to look at your birth chart and see what's what. What issues should you be on the lookout for and can they be avoided? If they can be avoided, how easily can they be avoided and will it require work? And by this point, you're probably thinking, okay, fine, but how can you see all of this in a birth chart? Let's set astrology aside for a second and think about something a little more down to earth. Consider this statement. Women are more likely to develop osteoporosis than men. This is a true statement, but there are many women who don't develop osteoporosis and there are some men who do. So even though this is a true statement, as a predictive tool, it's not very useful. But what about this? Women who are petite are more likely to develop osteoporosis than women who aren't. That's better, right? What about this? Women who are petite and who smoke are even more likely to develop osteoporosis. Or how about this? Women who are petite and who smoke and who happen to be of Asian or European descent are even likelier still to develop osteoporosis. Do you see how that works? Having just one risk factor is hardly enough to predict with any certainty that a particular person will develop osteoporosis, but having multiple factors makes that prediction much more likely to come true. It's the same with astrology. A prediction is much more likely to come true if it is supported by multiple parts of the horoscope. This is called confluence. Now, you've heard me talk about yogas, right? I even did an astrosplaining about it. Well, here's a yoga I have never mentioned, the Kalpadruma yoga. It's very auspicious. If you have this yoga in your chart, it's a very good sign. 
Now to understand how this yoga is formed, I need to give you a definition. Right? The word is dispositor. The dispositor of a planet is the planet that owns the house that that first planet occupies. Venus owns the sign of Taurus, right? So if the moon is in Taurus, that means that Venus is the moon's dispositor. If Jupiter is in Gemini, that means that Mercury is Jupiter's dispositor because Mercury owns Gemini. Okay? So here's how you get the Kalpajruma Yoga. It's made up of four parts. Number one, you need the Lord of your first house. You need the dispositor of the Lord of your first house. You need the dispositor of the dispositor of the Lord of your first house. And you need the Navamsha dispositor for whatever planet was the answer to number three. All of those four planets have to be exalted or in their own sign or in houses one, four, five, seven, nine, or ten. If you have all of that in your chart, you've got the Kalpadruma Yoga. It's not very common, but we're going to talk about two people who had this rare and auspicious yoga in their birth chart. The first is George VI, Queen Elizabeth's father. He had Libra in his first house, occupied by Saturn and Venus. Venus owns Libra. Lord of the first house, in a good house, in a sign that he owns, check. It's part one. Cool. Now, because Venus is in her own sign, she's her own dispositor. So not only does this chart meet the first requirement for this yoga, it also meets the second and the third. So we're looking at Venus, right? Venus is the Lord of the first house. Because she's in her own sign, she's the dispositor of the Lord of the first house and also the dispositor of the dispositor of the Lord of the first house, right? So Venus checks the first three boxes. Okay. So we look at the Navamsha chart and we see that Venus is in the sign of Aquarius. Aquarius is owned by Saturn, meaning that Saturn is Venus's Navamsha dispositor. So then we go back to the first house and oh look, Saturn is sitting with Venus in the first house, in Libra. Saturn is exalted in Libra, and he's in the first house. So that means we have all four requirements for the Kalpadruma Yoga. But because Venus is in her own sign in the first house, she also forms a Malavya Yoga. And because Saturn is exalted and in the first house, he forms a Shasha Yoga. Because Venus, owner of George's first house, is in the same house as Saturn, the owner of George's fourth house, they together form a Dharma Karma Adipati Yoga. Saturn aspects Jupiter and, oh look, Jupiter is exalted and in the tenth, making a very strong Hamsa Yoga. This is an amazing chart. All of these yogas individually can point to a life of achievement, but the fact that he has all these yogas and that he lived through the dashas of the planets that make these yogas helps to explain why he became king, even though he was not originally supposed to. This is confluence. Lots of signs pointing to the same outcome.
Now, let's look at another Kalpadrilla Yoga. This one belongs to a man named Zachary Bowen. Like George VI, Zachary also had Libra in his first house, which makes Venus the lord of his first house. Zachary had Venus in Taurus, which Venus owns, so that satisfies condition number one. And since Venus is in her own sign, conditions two and three are also satisfied. So now we go over to the Navamsha chart. We see that Venus is in Virgo in the Navamsha. Mercury owns Virgo. So we go back to the birth chart and what do you know? Mercury is sitting in the seventh house. So Zachary has all four parts of the Kalpadruma Yoga. Hooray, right? Maybe not. Zachary's Venus is in the malefic eighth house, which she shares with her enemy, the sun. Venus is also receiving the aspect of the malefic planet Saturn. And Zachary's Saturn is extremely unstable because, number one, he's in a sign owned by his enemy, the sun, and two, He's sitting right on the border between Cancer and Leo, and that is not good. When Zachary was born, Saturn was sitting in the same house as the moon, which means Zachary was born into a Sarisati. Ouch. Meanwhile, Zachary's first house is not strong. It is aspected by that very unstable Saturn that we mentioned. He's also aspected by a debilitated Mars. Now it's true that the benefic planet Jupiter also aspects Zachary's first house, but even though Jupiter is happy-ish in this chart because he's in the ninth house, he is sitting in the sign of Gemini, which is owned by Jupiter's enemy, Mercury. Now, some traditions use the Navamsha as a companion to the birth chart. The idea is that if the birth chart is the map of the karmas that you enter the world with, the Navamsha shows how well you will deal with those karmas. If the birth chart is a, a basket of ripe apples, then the Navamsha would be the apple pie. It could be a delicious apple pie, or it could be a terrible apple pie, depending on how well you bake. So it's interesting that in Zachary's Navamsha chart, Z Saturn, Venus, and Jupiter are debilitated. It's also interesting that his Navamsha Mars is exalted, while in the birth chart, Mars is debilitated, although he is also directionally strong. I am emphasizing Zachary Bowen's Mars because Mars is the planet of anger, and in 2006, Zachary killed his girlfriend, violated her corpse, chopped her body into pieces, and cooked them. He later died by suicide. You see? Confluence. Two people can have the exact same rare yoga and still lead very different lives. Every yoga, every aspect has to be examined in the context of the broader horoscope. The Kalpajuma Yoga by itself did not make George VI king, but it helped because it was supported by a bunch of other good yogas. And the Kalpadruma, auspicious as it is, wasn't enough by itself to overcome the many, many afflictions in Zachary Bowen's chart. And here's something else 
to chew on. Your friendly neighborhood astrologer has the Kalpadruma Yoga too. Mine is made of planets that are very strong and who make some good yogas as well as some planets that are a little weak, severely weak in one case. Next year, I will enter the dasha of one of those very strong planets. I'm not expecting to become a monarch anytime soon, but I also don't think I'm going to murder or cook anyone, although who knows. So what will this auspicious yoga mean for me? That brings us to the last type of karma I want to discuss. Because yes, you come into the world with various karmic debts to settle, but you also generate new karmas as you go on living. So whatever my various yogas bring me, I, in each moment of my life, control how I react to things. This is where free will comes in. This is called Kriyamana Karma. It's current, present tense action. My Mars is powerful, and he has done a lot of good things for me. But in my chart, he signifies my fixed-ish karma regarding anger. Mars is in my sixth house, exalted, aspecting my ascendant. Anger is there. It is my default reaction. But since I understand that about myself, I can work on it. It's a fixed-ish karma. I can change it. It doesn't have to control me. And by constantly working on this by way of Kriyamana karma, I can slowly but surely change the nature of my to karma, that big old heap of karmas in the sky, so that maybe in my next go-round I can come back as a, a sweetheart, as a lover, not a fighter. And there you have it. I do hope you enjoyed this special episode of the show. Send me an email at astrosplained at gmail.com and let me know what you thought. While you're at it, check out our website, www.astrosplained.com. And why don't you give the show five stars and a good review? It's good karma. Kidding. Just kidding. Your karma is your business, but I'll be your very best friend. And that's the next best thing, right? Anyhow, I'm Charles, your friendly neighborhood astrologer and part-time karma chameleon. Thank you, as always, for listening to Astrosplained.